mindfulness mode. I think we're on the right track, but we're still the uh, tortoise racing against the hair of climate change. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Hey, Mindful Tribe, it is April, and even though we're going through a lot of challenges that we don't usually go through in April, one thing that probably comes to mind when you think of April, and that is Earth Day, taking care of our planet. And I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about that today. We're going to be discussing all kinds of elements that have to do with Earth Day. And I have the man to do it right here with me. I've got Jerry Yuddleson. Jerry, are you in mindfulness mode today? I sure hope so. Or my (laughs) wife and dog are going to be very disappointed. (laughs) Well, you certainly sound like you're in in mindfulness mode. And I want to share a little bit about you before we get right into the interview with Mindful Tribe. And that is that Jerry Yuddleson, as a student, was involved in the founding of Earth Day, as were a lot of other students at the time. Uh, And he's also the author of an upcoming book called The Godfather of Green, an eco-spiritual memoir. And in that book, he shows the serious, how, se- how the serious practice of meditation and mindfulness can go hand in hand with practical and radical ecology. And he says the message is simple, change yourself before you try to change the world. And this is so close to Jerry's heart. And As a matter of fact, he has become known worldwide as the Godfather of Green. So I'm excited to have the Godfather of Green with us because I certainly believe in preserving our earth and doing everything that we can to to save this beautiful planet. So before we get into that, what does mindfulness mean to you, Jerry? What it means for me is being aware at all times of what you're thinking, how you're feeling, how you're relating to other people. Are you coming from a place of inner peace, inner steadiness, coming from a place of love? And this is a life, as you know, a lifelong endeavor to to be real in the moment, to be ourselves in the moment and to understand our connection with other people in the moment because we all have these times early on where we think oh i should have done this or i should have done that it's that's not mindful to me it's regretful so i think the issue of mindfulness is trying to stay present and take the benefit of your practices whatever they may be in my case meditation and other spiritual practices, take those out and offer them to other people. But not by saying I'm offering you something, it's by being who you are and being real in the moment and acknowledging them. And it's interesting, my teachers would begin every talk by saying with great respect and love I welcome you all with all my heart. And I think by taking that feeling 
of oneness into our environment, we actually do create a better world for ourselves and for others, particularly right now when everyone is so stressed out. And if I go to a grocery store, I like to thank the people at the checkout counter for being there. They don't get thanked enough. No, I agree. They're exposed to all of us all the time, even if they have a little shield in front of them, a sneeze guard, like they have on salad bars, right? Right. (laughs) Um, They need to be acknowledged and thanked. And so that sense of gratitude that we bring into the encounter with others, with ourselves, is, I think, a foundational practice of mindfulness. Well, let's talk about your practice of meditation. What type of meditation do you do and how often and how long? And is it guided or silent? What's it like? That's a great question. So I've been practicing a form of meditation called Siddha Yoga meditation since the mid 70s when I met a great master named Swami Muktananda. And he initiated people into a form of meditation which is basically mantra repetition, then going into a silent space and staying there as long as you can. When I sit to meditate, I usually meditate for an hour. And I call the practice, you know, watching and waiting. You watch the play of the mind and you wait for the grace of your practice to reveal something to you. And sometimes it does, and sometimes it's just kind of tight-lipped and quiet, and you just do it do it again. And so what I wrote about in the book was over time, I began to have insights into my own nature and into a sense of being willing to be guided by intuition in each moment. And I think that is the fruit of a meditation practice. But ultimately, it is just about watching and waiting while you sit. And then letting the mind become quiet. And then going to that place of inner bliss, inner happiness that each one of us has as soon as the mind stops chattering. It's our own nature to be happy. But... A lot of times, in a lot of circumstances, you just have to wait for that moment to come during meditation. And all of a sudden you say, I don't need to think about this stuff anymore. Where did this come from? This is just, I I have a phrase for it. I said, oh, this just desire looking for an object. (laughs) And and once I can label, oh, this is just desire looking for an object, it's like, okay, I'll just put it aside. If it comes back later, fine. If not, I don't need it. So that's my practice. Right, right. Well, in my intro, I said that you suggest people change themselves before they try to change the world. When should we start trying to help keep the world the way it is? I mean, there are so many things we can do to change ourselves, and we've talked about meditation, and, you know, just looking at the world with a more positive view, what can we do to start to change the world? I think everyone has to find their own 
path, their own, in India it's called Dharma, their own righteous way of living. But it doesn't, this is an interactive process. It, it doesn't mean that, well, I'll just sit here by myself and wait until I'm totally perfect and then I'll go out and change the world, right? It, it's, mm-hmm. you do something, plant a tree, attend a, a, a climate strike, whatever suits your fancy, and then you go back and do your practice. And then you do something else. You can't not act when you're living in the body. You're always doing something. So I think each person has to find their own path, their own practice that works. And it changes over time. When I'm young and angry at the world I've inherited from my elders, as I was during Earth Day, I'm more inclined to protest and criticize and so forth. And when I see that, you know, by finding ways for other people to get engaged, finding ways for other people to find a way to be supportive of what I'm advocating and letting them do it in their own way that I can make more progress. So I think it's just a practice of maturing over time is you realize that you have to bring people along. And when I think about the climate crisis, the climate emergency today, that is really a pandemic waiting to happen in the next decade and beyond, you realize that the best thing to do right now is to have a conversation with somebody. Hey, here's what's going on. Here's what I've found. What do you think? Uh, how do you think we should approach this, uh, et cetera. And what, what can you do as individuals? You know, I plant a garden every year. It's not that the garden feeds me per se, but it's that the act of planting a garden does bring positive energy into the world. And I think whatever you do, whether it's raising your children to love nature as a parent, whether it's spending time by the seashore or in the forest as an adult, all of these things have a cumulative impact. And so I don't preach one way or the other. You just do what you do. You, you tell people about it. You ask them what they're thinking and you take the next step. Well, almost all of us can plant things I know at one point I lived in an apartment and I had a a balcony and I could have some potted plants out there. I could have some different herbs like basil and thyme and things like that. And I enjoyed it. It was, it it just gave me a certain amount of fulfillment. Uh, I could actually have a larger garden if I wanted to at this point in life because I do have the space for it. So I think that could be a very... I don't know if I would say healing, but a very positive experience to do that, especially at this time. Yeah, I, you know, it's, I've got three tomato plants, a cucumber <laughs> and, so, and some lettuce. And so every now and then for the next few months, we'll have a dinner salad from the garden. I put up a hummingbird feeder. Just again, I live in, in a suburban area and it's not nature, but it's not you know, the, the tough streets of Toronto, so to speak. 
Um, right. And I think most people, a third of the U.S. lives in suburbs and a third in rural areas and a third in more urban areas. So everyone is going to have their own different approach. But one of the things I love about gardening is that you can't rush anything. Everything has its own time. Mm -hmm. Right now I'm waiting for the bluebells to bloom, but they're going to take another few weeks as the plant grows and so forth. But I know they're going to be there. I can see them getting ready for the big dance. And, right. you know, just that kind of tuning in to rhythms, um, even just checking, I live by the ocean, I like to check the tide charts just to know when's high tide, when's low tide. We can't visit the beach right now because they're all shut down. Mm -hmm. But when we can, it's a beautiful way to just connect with the earth with your feet on the sand. It's, and I think that sense of connection with the earth, whether it's just talking to the trees in your backyard. Hi, how are you doing? Nice to see you. Um, any problems here? <laughs> um, you want to do this by yourself, of course. Um, <laughs> but, but I do think that the, the, the sense that we are as human beings, we've evolved to be in nature. We haven't evolved to be in front of screens all the time, even though they're very useful tools. They've come to dominate during this time of lockdown and there are beautiful ways to connect with people from all over the world and to see my wife is on one now, which is, I think it's called something like my back window or my rear window where people all over the world are just showing the shot out their window and what they're thinking. Ah. And you begin to see that this is a common humanity. And I think that openness to other people has a positive effect at a subtle level that we don't always realize we're doing, but every person who is offering positive energy during this time is, I think, making a contribution. I think you're right. Your book called The Godfather of Green and Eco-Spiritual Memoir, I'm interested to know the level of mindfulness it takes to create something like that. I know you've written a number of books. Let's talk about how you made this happen. It's very interesting. Um, I've written 14 business and professional books. And the thing about a professional book is it's all at arm's length. It's about the subject matter. And a memoir is about you as the subject matter and your the arc of your life, if you will. So after I'd written all these books four years ago, three years ago, you know, I recalled something I had read once. There were some very well-known spiritual books in the 70s and 80s by Carlos Castaneda about a, a Yaqui Indian shaman that he apprenticed with called Don Juan Matus. And in that book, in, in one of the books, I think there were almost 10 of them, um, Don Juan tells Carlos, the writer, that before he dies, he has to make an accounting of his life for himself. 
And somehow that phrase stuck with me. So when I had some free time three years ago, I say, well, it's time I'm reaching a certain age. I'm now a seasoned citizen, so to speak. And it's time to do some inner, inner, inner work, inner, introspection. And I started writing. And at first, when you write a memoir, it's like, uh, this happened, and that happened, and this happened, and that happened. And it's pretty boring. And then I started to dive deeper. Well, why did this happen? And what was driving me? What was I thinking? What were the influences? And so you go back to childhood, and they say the child is the father of the man, is a phrase. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I, you know, I, I grew up with this influence and that influence. But then at some point, and so I wrote out stuff and I shared it with friends. And they were all like, well, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, as friends will do. Yeah, I could sure. see, you know, some interesting passages there. But it wasn't digging deep enough. And then I began to relax, if I could say it this way, relax into the project. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to achieve anything any longer. I had to let a process play out. And that process was, I began to recall things from that were seminal moments, the death of my father and something I did at that funeral that had ramifications psychologically, if you will, um, an incident where that first got me into being a advocate for solar power and solar energy. Um, and so I began to get these insights that, you know, as a writer, you then have to do something with an insight. You have to make it real, flesh it out. And fortunately, when it came to my wife, she has a unique quality, which is she forgets nothing. And that can be good and bad, depending <laughs> on circumstances. But in creating dialogue, because she was an actress and an acting teacher, she understands dialogue, she wrote some screenplays. Um, I said, you know, when I asked you to marry me, what did I say? <laughs> what did we talk about? And this is 35 years ago, because what you find when you write a memoir, particularly over covering a long period of time, is unless you are an avid journalist, like real writers are, you don't remember a lot of dialogue. You, know, you remember a phrase here and a phrase there that had a psychological or emotional impact, and you could build a scene around it, but you don't remember a lot of dialogue. So long story short, my wife began filling in you know, and when we first got together, you know, what did we talk about? That kind of stuff. And then from a spiritual practice, I had, in fact, kept diaries, journals on occasion. And I actually found journals from when I first met my teacher and began to recall some of the experiences I had. And I lived, I lived in his ashrams for a year and a half. And in India and in the US and you know I had very deep meditation experiences um, that were very revealing 
And so gradually I began to cobble this thing together. And I said, well, there's these two threads. Can I weave a tapestry out of these two divergent threads of environmentalism and, and spiritual practices? And so I began to go, how did one inform the other? And kind of getting back to your earlier um, quote of change yourself before you want to change the world. How was I able to take my practices, inner practices into practical outer work, if you want to make that distinction? Um, and what did I learn about people that allowed me to do this kind of work and to be effective and eventually in my 60s to go all around the world giving talks about green things and green buildings um, and not to feel that I was a stranger anywhere, to feel welcome in all of these diverse habitats from the Middle East to Australia and South America and all over Europe and plenty of places in Canada as well. Um, which I have to say for Americans is still a foreign country. Um, mm. and I think Canadians appreciate hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I began to see the relationship between things. And then uh, one of the things that, that you do learn, and you read this from a lot of very successful writers like Stephen King, who wrote a book once, a memoir about how he writes in his life, is you have to read a lot. And so I, while I was doing this writing, I was reading a lot. And I mostly read contemporary novels because I like to see, well, how does a novelist create a scene out of nothing, of thin air, so to speak, out of his imagination, her imagination. And it loosened up my writing. And so one of the things I think if you're a practitioner of mindfulness or meditation is you have access to your inner workings in a very spontaneous way. Things come to you. You hear people talking in the supermarket. They're not talking to you, but you hear something that somebody says and you say, oh, that's interesting. Yes, that clarifies something for me. Because you can learn from everywhere, everything, right? Not just your garden, but random conversations, how people are with each other. So one of the things I learned as a writer is to be observant. And, you know, it's not that easy for most guys of a certain age and society to be attentive to others. Um, we always want to be out there ourselves, right? So it opened me up, long story short, and allowed me to write what I think is an interesting book that isn't about trauma. Yeah, there were some rough periods, but I didn't have these horrific traumas that you read in a lot of memoirs where you wonder how, how did this person even survive to write this story? And, you know, I respect that they've done that, but it's not the life I've led and, and I've been very blessed. But I also think people want to read happy things. Yeah, I think People so. Want to read things that are uplifting and that open them up. And I think that's the feedback I've gotten from a lot of um, readers who I've asked to review the book who are themselves meditators. 
mm-hmm. that one one woman who I respect highly who's the president of a nonprofit and has been in that world her whole life and been giving her whole life. She said, I couldn't put it down. I'm like, of all people, that's the least one I would have expected from me. Um, my wife has shown that she could put it down <laughs> it up again. So, right. you know, began to see, well, this is really a gift that I've been given is the ability to write something to uh, have reflections that might other people might find valuable and then to offer that in the form of a memoir and an offering that I can make to others. And so I really have viewed this um, project and this process as creating an offering the same way that you might create a wonderful dinner for guests and do your best to cook everything nicely and have the silverware out and the nice dishes and all the stuff you don't eat off of every <laughs> every day. Or in our case, the wedding china that gets packed away and you know nobody does that anymore. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. So long story short, it's an offering, it's a um, reflection and it was an intensely valuable process for me. So I would say for anybody, if you reach a certain age, whatever that might be, there's a lot of wonderful memoirs written by people who are 30 years old. And they just are focused on a one, one incident or a childhood or what have you. Um, but do it for yourself and then offer it to others. And if you have the ability and the good fortune to find a publisher, then you can publish it. Jerry, in our area around here, there are a lot of wind turbines, there are solar farms, and of course we know that that electric vehicles are becoming more and more popular. Are we on the right track with all these things? I think we're on the right track, but we're still the uh, tortoise racing against the hare of climate change. And, you know, I was in um, Winnipeg a few yes. years ago researching a book and it was described to me as the windiest large city in North America because the wind blows across the prairies unheated for hundreds and hundreds of miles. And I'm thinking, well, where the wind blows, you put up wind turbines um, all over the Midwest. When the, the winds which blow west to east come out of the Rockies and flow across the Midwest and why not have wind turbines? You could still graze cattle underneath if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and Texas. So I think you could power entire North America in a small part of the desert of California and Arizona. It's the sun shines 330, 40 days a year, full on. So, yeah, I think we're on the right path. In fact, something like 70 to 80% of all new electric power capacity added every year now comes from wind and sun. The electric cars, but they're only one or 2% in the market. Right. So what I hope we learn from this pandemic is that we do have the power to create a different future. We do have the power to respond to um, real challenges and we have to get serious about being ready 
because we've had plenty of warnings. We've had plenty of task forces, and I don't know the situation in Canada, but it's clear the U.S. had lots of task forces and knew what to do, but never really decided to stockpile any food in the larder, so to speak. Um, but yeah, we're on the right path. There's a lot of things we can do, but time is short. And I think that's the issue with our politics. Even in Canada, you have some of these same issues. Um, can we move quickly enough to avert the worst effects of climate change? We already know that we've baked it into the pie, mm -hmm. that the oceans are going to be warmed up for 300 years. Nothing we can do about it. And sea levels are going to rise and Antarctica is going to lose an awful lot of ice in Greenland too. And we know that's already underway. In Canada, the Arctic ice is getting smaller with each succeeding summer. Um, and so, yeah, good news. I guess if you live in the far north, it'll be warmer. But bad news is you won't have any ice roads to serve all those communities. They'll be swampy. And right. I think that's something we're all going to have to do. So a long story short is we now know that we can respond. We now know it's not going to be easy, but we can do it in a more mindful way than just waiting for something to happen and then having this flurry of response where our Congress all of a sudden spent $2 trillion it didn't have just to try to buy a little time for people. Mm -hmm. um, isn't going to work for very long, but people do need to be helped. And I think that's the, the long answer to a short question is, yes, we can do a lot, but we have only a 50-50 chance right now of holding warming below two degrees centigrade. And that's um, if we take lots of actions between now and 2030. So the next decade is really a momentous one for what I might call the human experiment. Now, you uh, talked about your gardening. Do you live in an eco-type home? What's your lifestyle? You know, like? we, we had a, we moved to the coast for my wife's health. And when we lived in Arizona and Tucson for 10 years, we did in fact create this eco-home with solar power and lots of fruit trees and gardens and got an award from the city of Tucson for having the first uh, home green, home-based business. Um, it's a little more difficult here because these are 20-year-old homes. And, you know, I think the issue is, can we do something here? And it's also, we're at a point in life where it's, you have to start watching your money so you do things the best you can, so to speak, you know, you need to have a reason to drive somewhere. You take transit when you can. If I go to Los Angeles, I take a train. It's a hundred miles. Um, you try, I am a vegetarian. I have been since I met my meditation teacher and he said, you should be a vegetarian. I said, okay, um, I'll try it. And here 40 years later, um, 
I'm still a vegetarian, so I eat lower on the food chain, which has a beneficial impact. I try to eat, go eat from farmers markets and you know everybody can find their own path of recycling using the blue bin, so to speak. Um, but I think it's this sort of environmental mindedness exists at a lot of levels and it exists at a level of how we vote as, as citizens, how we respond to others, what we advocate for. So everyone can find a place. Well, Jerry, uh, Earth Day is coming up on April 22nd. Has it always been that week in April since 1970? Yeah, I think people uh, originally chose the Earth Day, I think because the weather is likely to be good. Right. <laughs> they, they, they started the previous September to organize things. And um, they wanted to do it while college students and others were still in school which mm -hmm. kind of makes it happen before middle of May. Uh, right. We had a National Arbor Day, which it used to be April 14th, so they didn't want it on that day. So somebody came up with a date that was in the middle of the week mm -hmm. and was something that would probably work weather-wise throughout the U.S. Um, so yes, it's always been April 22nd and has been celebrated from time to time, I mean, every year, and a big celebration was the 20th anniversary. Um, and interestingly enough, Earth Day in 1970 led to the first UN Conference on the Environment in 1972. Ah, that is interesting. And is it, is it celebrated the world over in no, practically really every country? No, it's American I was wondering. holiday. You know, we have now um, Earth Week, we have, um, what do they call the event with the lights out, <clears throat> earth awareness kind of Oh, night. right. That's something different, isn't it? And that started in Sydney, in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, so, but everybody has some spring celebration of the nature because certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, it's when nature is in full bloom, so right. to speak. And right. then those who thought it was a communist plot at the time remarked that it was Lenin's birthday. Oh. So that made it a communist plot. So there's many um, versions of this, but it was really a spontaneous gesture because at that time we had rivers on fire in the U.S. because there was so much oil in the rivers from chemical plants and so forth. We had the largest oil spill in US history to the time in Santa Barbara, California, the previous uh, year. Everything was kind of coming to a head. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles. There was 180 days a year of air pollution alerts where it was dangerous to breathe. Wow. We used to, we used to have a morbid joke, which was, I wouldn't want to breathe any air I couldn't see. <laughs> and you could see the air pollution oh, wow. in front of you. So today, Los Angeles County has three times as many people and only 80 days a year of unhealthy air. So we've made progress. But it was mostly because of regulation and technology. 
you may not recall, but cars used to not have catalytic converters. Right, yes. And they were just putting nitrogen oxides and sulfur oxides and unburned hydrocarbons and all the diesel vehicles into the air. And of course, diesel particles you breathe. They get right and, into your And lungs. I think a lot of motorcycles and lawnmowers still spew that kind of thing. Am I right? Right. And in Asia, when you see all the photographs of Asian cities like New Delhi and Mumbai and Beijing, it's two-stroke engines. Everybody on scooters, motorcycles uh, that are all burning diesel. And that, when you talk about electric vehicles, you want to say, well, it's not hard to electrify a scooter. And it doesn't you can charge a scooter and go the whole day without really using up much of the charge. So the easiest thing to do is just to take all those, open up the workshops and refit all of those scooters for electric motors. That would be easy. Those are direct drive, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So we can do this, a lot of this technologically, but a lot of it is also about our way of thinking our way of thinking in Canada, at least you're blessed with the idea of the First Nations here as a live part of your culture, I would say here the presence of Native Americans is real, but it's more like a, a ghost of mm. our past transgressions, so to speak. Um, you begin to see that We've treated the earth as a waste dump, as a place that we can desecrate without any penalty for a long time. And that's a mode of thinking. That isn't how people used to be. It isn't how Western culture used to be. But with the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, the idea that man is the measure of all things, with the steam engine, and the coal mines, we took a different path 300 years ago, and now nature is fighting back. Mm -hmm. And if you're a baseball fan, you say, well, nature bats last. Mm. Nature has the last at bat. And we now have to really face the fact that we're creating a world that we're gonna have to live in for the first time in human history Human beings are the dominant species on the planet. And we're responsible for the environment. And we have to act in a very different way. And that's the hardest thing. You know, it's easy to change technology. I can change out your diesel engine for an electric engine in motor in, in a day. Mm -hmm. But to change culture, takes generations and yeah, we don't have sure. that much time. So that yeah. to me is our greatest environmental challenge is mindfulness of what we're doing and a willingness to follow that insight wherever it leads. Right. Jerry, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who influenced your mindfulness practice? 
Well, I would say my first teacher, Swami Muktananda, and of course his successor, his name is Guru Mai, um, is my teacher now. And they gave everything I, I needed. In fact, he would often say, well, I've given you everything. Now you have to do something. Hmm. Yeah, and that's... That's the the case with all of us, isn't it? Now we have to do something. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Jerry? Well, I think occasionally you might have a blip of anger or you think somehow someone's being a little unfair. And it's at that time that something kicks in and it's the witness, it's the watcher and says, you know, get off of it. Uh, there's nothing here to be angry about. How can you understand what this person is trying to say or this person is doing? It doesn't mean that if somebody's doing something that's really bad that you don't say anything, but your anger is not emotional. It's directed at it for a purpose. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness. Ah, breathe in deep, breathe out long. Just breathing. I have this little app on my Apple Watch, and every now and then it pops up and says, breathe. Mm. And for 60 seconds, you can stop and breathe, and it will it will give you the uh, tap on the shoulder, the attaboy. Um, but I do think that you begin to see this connection between mind and breath as a pathway into meditation, but also as an awareness. Am I breathing now? Am I calm and centered? Because if you're breathing deeply in and out, you're gonna be calm and centered. It's impossible not to be. Right, right. What book would you recommend that's related to mindfulness? That's a really interesting question. I would say, Swami Muktananda's autobiography, Play of Consciousness, will take you to that place right away. Uh, he wrote that in 1970, and it's never been out of print. Play of Consciousness. All it's right, great, we'll, put that, we'll put that in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. And you already mentioned the app that's on your Apple Watch called Breathe. And uh, yeah, because I always ask a question about an app, but it's been really, really fascinating talking to you, Jerry. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Where would we go to learn more about what you do? Well, if you're interested in the book, may I show it? Of course. Here's the book right here. The Godfather of Green. There you go. So I have this virtual background and... If you move too much, things go crazy. Right. But, um, the book will be out next on April 22nd. I'm not going to say next week because it probably won't be next week then. Um, but jerryudelson.net is the website for the book. And I have a blog, a more professional blog called reinventinggreenbuilding.com. Um, if you're interested in the climate crisis, and I write a lot now about the uh, coronavirus and our response to it and 
what lessons we can take into dealing with climate. And obviously there are things you can do. There are things you can learn. So, um, but jerryudelson.net gets you to the book and you know, I post some blogs there too. And I'm going to spell that for you, Mindful Tribe. Jerry with a J, J-E-R-R-Y, Udelson, Y-U-D-E-L-S-O-N dot net. And reinventinggreenbuilding.com is where your blog lives. So thanks so much for being on the show, Jerry. I really Thank appreciate you. this. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my, my pleasure. I can, and I can see you you also could interview yourself and have a wonderful show. <laughs> Thank you. Have a wonderful green Earth Day. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you. Yeah, bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.